Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. Today, we're celebrating February 14th, National Donor Day. What a day to make life happen. Here's what we're talking about on the show. Lori, not only are we celebrating National Donor Day, we are celebrating today for our first DCD heart donation ever in the United States. And since it's Valentine's Day as well, we're going to talk about how conflict can benefit your relationship. Okay, that's a twist. Mm -hmm. Didn't see that coming. Maybe you did. We're going to talk about all that and more. Here we go. All right, guys, here on The Gifted Life, we want to bring you the most cutting edge information when it comes to donation. This is it. So hold on to your hats. Uh, We want to learn. We want you to learn, too. That's why we've partnered with Lifeline of Ohio. Yes, today we're bringing you uh, an old friend of mine and colleague from Ohio, uh, Andrew Mullins. He's the chief operating officer there at Lifeline. Welcome in, Andrew. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So you guys were involved, in, and you obviously were one of the ones that spearheaded uh, one of the landmarks in the donation process, in donation after circulatory death, uh, to be specific. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you guys' lives have changed and, and what you did to change the donation world in the last couple months? Yes, actually, on uh, Sunday, December the 1st, we, we had two milestones uh, in the field of organ donation, again, all thanks to the decision of a registered donor. And those two landmarks or two milestones that we had was one was the first DCD heart to be transplanted in the United States, and also the first five uh, six organ uh, DCD donor where we were able to recover heart, lungs, liver, and kidneys all successfully transplanted. That is quite amazing, and of course, wow, being yeah. being a, a, a clinical guy myself, that's always been something that's been out there. We've talked about it. It's been a possibility, but we never really had the technology, the, the, the equipment. And, and of course, uh, you know, there were other challenges that, that were brought, you know, over time as well. So can you talk us through some of the challenges that you guys anticipated, uh, went in, you know, and addressed ahead of time? And then maybe some of those that you didn't anticipate that, that uh, kind of caught you off guard that you then had to deal with. To be honest, it was a it was a pretty straightforward process for us. Uh, so there weren't really any surprises uh, in this. We addressed everything uh, in in real time with the hospital staff and make sure that we were communicating fully with all the surgeons that were going to be involved in the recovery process to make sure everyone was on the same page and tried to get ahead of you know any possible concerns or challenges or issues that we were going to potentially run into. And so we were fortunate that everything was very smooth, and we ended up with a very successful recovery process. So, the you know, one of the things that I never, first of all, I, I never thought I was going to see DCD heart wow, yeah. occur in, in, my, in my lifetime. I didn't think it was even, I knew it was a possibility based off of what was happening over in Europe, but I didn't know that I would see that happen here in the United States. So we went about our normal process, and, you know, the, the family... Prior to a couple of days before December the first, had made the the decision to 
uh, withdrawal ventilator support based off of, you know, his injury that brought him into the hospital of cardiac arrest. And at that point, our family services coordinator went in and uh, had the discussion with uh, the family. Just for the listeners, just to clarify, and I know I mentioned uh, DCD, the two ways that one can become a donor, well, three ways. One is, is a living donor. The other two are, are donation after neurological death or, or brain death or donation after circulatory death. And roughly uh, nationwide, around 90% of the donations are when someone has suffered a brain injury, a neurological injury, which has caused brain death. And with donation after circulatory death, the donors become donors only after circulatory death. And, and usually this happens after someone has suffered a, a brain injury, not always, but almost always, where they've suffered a brain injury of some sort, whether it be from a traumatic brain injury, whether it be from a, a stroke, a hemorrhagic stroke, a bleeding stroke, or an anoxic injury uh, from, uh, from some other means. And this was someone that, uh, that would have either lived in a persistent vegetative state or uh, decided themselves from an advanced directive or their families uh, wanted to withdraw support because that's not how they wanted to live. And, and those are the, the, the patients that can become donors through donation after circulatory death. On the bright note, he was already registered, so he'd already made that decision. So it was really helping them sort of walk through the process. And then at that point, we started you know, going into our allocation. We didn't even know anything about DCD heart at that point in time. We didn't even know that, again, that it was happening here in the U.S. And we had heard a conversation from one of our organ recovery coordinators that was that was in with our program that particular day and found out that that he had heard that there was a couple of programs in the US that were getting ready to start DCD heart transplant. And so based off of that information there's a discussion that was, you know, had with our team lead and about the opportunity should we even, you know, look at this as a as a potential and so we did, we had a uh, echocardiogram done that showed, you know, a very strong ejection fraction, which in our field we know is a, is a good sort of standard of, of uh, good potential for the heart to be used for transplant. And at that point, we ran the list, and there was two patients that came up on the list. What a pleasant surprise. I would have never thought to, to even, we haven't even looked at the heart list when we're running our, our match runs. To, to, to then say, okay, well, there are, pa- there are you know, patients on there. So for you guys to get that notification and to look, was that was uh, very fortuitous, and it was, it was really a nice job from, from you guys to, to actually then go out and seek that. Thank you. It was, a, it was an opportunity, like I said, it presented to us, and, and we didn't think twice about not looking at the opportunity to, to save another life uh, and thanks to new technology and, and things that are out there, this is now an, an option. And it's and really this, you know, this has such an uh, impact on so many lives moving forward. When you look at the heart list and look at the number of patients that are currently waiting for a transplant, look at the number of patients that are dying each day waiting for a heart transplant that doesn't come uh, in time, this will provide uh, the opportunity for more lives to be able to be saved uh, just through this new option. And so I think that's, that's what it's all about. And we all know that it all starts with the donor and none of this happens. Transplantation doesn't happen without the donor. And so thanks to uh, our donor, 26 year old Justice Yoder for making this uh, 
really this this landmark even a, an opportunity for for patients absolutely and and obviously it started with him saying yes to donation uh you know obviously well ahead of this time and and uh, to be that thoughtful of others uh through through you know through death and leave that legacy is is definitely a, an indication of of his character you you talked about technology and and the change in technology can you can you share with us a little bit about some of the changes that have enabled this to take place now sure i i, I really feel that the the sole reason that dcd heart is now an opportunity for patients is based off of the transmedic ocs heart system that that's in existence that truly is what was able to um, resuscitate the heart in this machine uh, to keep it in a state that it's clinically able to be transplanted you know during the flight back to duke from from columbus ohio and you know we've had technology in, in the preservation space for years if you look back at kidney preservation the the, the pulse-style kidney perfusion machines have been around for decades. And now you look at new things such as liver preservation machines, perfusion machines. You look at lungs now, DCD lungs. If you go back a couple of years, that wasn't even something we were talking about. And now with new technology, uh, when a patient is a donation after circulatory death donor, the option for lungs to be able to be recovered, placed on this machine, machine and transplanted successfully is, is now there. And now we're talking about the heart. Uh, it wasn't long ago where we were talking about, well, it used to be in brain death, patients that were declared dead by brain death. When when donation moved forward, their multiple lives were able to be saved, and we initially thought through donation after circulatory death, there were lives able to be saved, but it wasn't maybe as, as many as potential if, if the individual was brain dead. And that's actually not even the case anymore. If you look at the technology and the number of organs that are able to be recovered and transplanted from DCD, it's comparable to brain death. And just to make one quick point, so so the the big difference in you know why technology is needed in this situation is with brain death, you know that person is is declared dead, and the recovery takes place uh, while the heart is still beating, and so the the time that the uh, what we call the ischemic time, the time that there's no perfusion, is limited. It's almost nothing. Uh, where the time for a, a brain for a, a circulatory death, after death is declared by circulatory death, there's a time period that everyone has to wait uh, to make sure that there's no auto resuscitation by the of the heart, you know, by that that person. So that's that's the actual time of death. That's where the time the heart stopped and it's no longer gonna re resuscitate itself. So, uh, you know, I just want to make a quick point that it's important to, to, to note that the heart doesn't get resuscitated, you know, there. It's only after it gets put on to this transmetic uh, machine, you know, in transportation that that the heart starts again. When you look at, in, in, in uh, Justice's situation, when you look at the, in the, in the organ recovery process, there is 13 minutes of, of time of warm ischemic time where there's no blood or oxygen perfusing to the heart. And then you look at the time of once it, the, the heart was recovered and getting prepared to go onto the transmetic machine. Um, when you look at that, I think total around about 45 minutes of time that the heart was not beating whatsoever. And then the, the, the heart uh, was able to be 
were sort of resuscitated once it was placed on the transmetic machine. So about 45 minutes in general is what we saw in this particular scenario. We always say uh, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, you guys are, are doing it and living it. And I guess just from my perspective, um, so all these amazing things are happening. And I um, hear Joey, and he's very excited about the possibility of saving more lives through what you guys are doing. So does this change um, education when it comes to those working in the hospital setting and the community? Um, are there new things that you guys are, are pushing out to help people better understand uh, what it is that you're doing? I know it was a, a big media story. People were following it. Um, that's one of the reasons we have you on the podcast, so we can all learn. So is there any other uh, ripple effects, changes within the organization and outside um, to help with this? We, we continue to do the same exact thing as far as our messaging and what we what we say and what we'll continue to say. First, it starts uh, for everyone that's listening to this podcast and anyone you know that that even hears anything about donation is to to make the decision to be an organized tissue donor. So to register your decision to be a donor, that's the first and foremost thing that you can do, and we encourage everyone to do that and also to to share that information with their with their family. As far as once we go, so that, that would be like sort of the public aspect uh, and the ask that we have. The second component, when we look at the hospital, it's really about the hospital making, uh, identifying the opportunity of when the referral should be made to the organ procurement organization. For instance, one of ours is when we know that the family has made the decision to withdraw support, that is a, uh, an opportunity for the hospital to, to call us and to call us in a timely manner uh, to let us know about this referral or once, you know, other clinical triggers that we have of Glasgow Coma scale of five or less, beating heart, obviously, on a ventilator for those referrals to come in. And that allows us the time to determine is there suitability for uh, organ donation to exist and at the right time to be able to have that conversation with the family. And, and like I said, for the case of DCD, once the family's made that decision to withdraw is when we're having the conversation about the opportunity for for the potential of donation. So it goes back to that early referral and ensuring that the hospitals are calling in a timely manner, um, making sure that there's a close partnership between the hospital and the organ procurement organization and continuing to build upon the strong relationships that already exist and just continuing to, to have a very supportive, positive culture of donation uh, in that hospital environment that can lead to identifying opportunities or, or new things that can happen. So we work with obviously a lot of families and what we hear is their excitement over wanting the heart to be transplanted specifically. Not that one gift is greater than the other because we know they're all life-saving and equal. Um, it's probably due to a lot of media exposure when you see someone listening to a heartbeat. Yeah. And so it used to be that for our DCD donors, the heart wasn't in actuality. And now it is. I'm wondering if when you spoke with your donor's family members, how excited they were that their heart was transplanted. And I'm sure just in the future, there's going to be so many family members who are so happy that now a heart is a possibility for DCD donors. Yeah, his Justice's family was amazing. Um, and when they heard, uh, first of all, they were excited that the option for donation was going to be able to exist. And then when they found out about the heart, because we all know like you said, the, about the heart, the heart's a special, like, you know, a lot of families connect immediately, just anyone in the public connects to the heart. There's something special about the heart, not that it makes it more important than any other organ, but there's something special about a heart. And so when they heard the information about not only was their son going to be an organ donor, but he was also going to pave the way for the future and, and really uh, about this new landmark opportunity they were also beyond excited to know that their son justice was going to, 
to be uh, able to initiate this entire process that's going to change the field of donation and transplant for, for our future and save countless lives. So, you know, multiple factors there, but they were just uh, beyond excited to be able to, to know that their son, their son as a hero of donation uh, was going to be able to impact so many lives and impact so many generations of lives to move forward. Well, Andrew, I'm so excited because, you know, as you know, this is very much a copycat type thing because we it's not there's it's not like there's uh, a heart bypass surgery that takes place in almost you know, every bigger hospital or other surgeries a bone fracture and uh, you know things like that that get fixed on, in, through surgery these things happen so often whereas transplants in general aren't that frequent you know it's not as frequent as we we would like so of course we always look to each other to colleagues and and when we read something you know, in, in the transplant world, when I'm reading something about the procurement world, you know, I get excited and, and it, of course, I want to do that. I've, that's some of the conversations you and I have had before, you know, how are y'all doing this and, and how can we do this, you know, as well as you guys are. So so because it's a copycat type thing and, and we, we have so limited information to, to learn from, uh, I see this spawn so many others uh, other transplants just like it. I, I, in my mind, I can I- imagine a lot of other heart transplant centers putting, starting to list their patients now that they've seen this. You know, we, you and I have seen this in with HIV donation and the Hope Act. You know, and and you know, once you've had a few transplant centers on board, all of a sudden, you know, now you've got fifty on board. And and I see the same thing with this, where a lot of uh, patients now. And and from the patients themselves, you know, transplant potential recipients that are there waiting for a heart saying, hey, why aren't you guys, you know, taking DCD hearts? I would be interested. I see this having a huge ripple effect in the very near future. And in fact, uh, and we, we talked about it just for a second, but so you guys were the first on December 1st and all of a sudden. There's roughly, we haven't gotten the official numbers in, but between uh, four and six others, or that, well, four and, and, and five others that have happened just in December alone after you guys pioneered and, and made the first kind of leap of faith there. Correct, yes. I don't know the, the official numbers, but I know there's been several programs, I, I would say at least five or six uh, successful DCD heart transplants that have taken place. Uh, we stay in close contact with the Duke surgeon that I was in the operating room with and our team was and just to see how the recipient's doing and, and just to see how things are going. And, and he let me know yesterday that uh, his center, Duke's Transplant Center, uh, has transplanted four DCD hearts as of yesterday, and all four patients are doing extremely well. And so that's just a, a, a taste of how um, this moving forward, just to see the success that this is going to have for, for patients that are waiting for a heart today on the list, knowing that there's, there's a, a high likelihood that they're going to be transplanted and transplanted in a timely manner uh, to, to really impact their life moving forward. So that's the four I know at Duke for sure. And I know there's a couple other centers, including MassGen and uh, I believe in Wisconsin. And I can't recall the centers, but I know this is a clinical trial and I believe there's four or five centers that are a part of the trial at this point. And I believe uh, they're, they're, they're ultimately trying to get at a about 221, 222 or so, if memory serves me correctly, uh, for the trial. And so uh, they're well underway. So when I read the story, the first 
thing I thought about was whether y'all had any ethical considerations to take into account. Yeah, so our take on this was it was a standard DCD process, and uh, we were, we're not going to make this. Um, we communicated to the stakeholders involved in the process, but we were not, with it being a standard DCD, we we're not going to to make this um, a bigger issue than it than it, it it wasn't an issue. It didn't need to be, you know, anything made big of this. And so what we did was we communicated to the stakeholders in real time of what in the hospital of uh, what was going to happen. And this was going to be the first and that in this case, the, the heart was after death had been declared and we went through the waiting period. And once the incision had been made, there was going to be a waiting, you know, there was going to be the, the heart was actually going to be removed from the body before it was placed on this machine. And so, as you said, Joey, there was a very clear black and white line there, uh, very delineated between are there any ethical concerns, et cetera? And in this case, there were zero ethical concerns because it was our standard process. The patient was was pronounced dead. And at that point, we had our, our, you know, by the attending physician, we waited the five minutes, incision was made, heart was recovered and placed on this machine. So there was zero. The scenario we faced uh, in what's currently taking place in the clinical trial in the U.S. right now is, is that the death's been declared, the heart's been recovered and then placed on the machine right out of the body and and obviously with the success so far with the trial with and at least you know obviously it's a small sample size but with the few sure. that have been recovered and transplanted and all being successful immediately and not having a delayed graft function or or a delay in the heart's function or poor function you know if you got if if it's successful i can't imagine that anyone would want to change uh what's going well so that's my, my take. No, yeah, on it. it's in, no, and I, and I believe if I, if I'm if uh, if I remember correctly, it's very comparable to the liver when you look at uh, what are the parameters of a warm ischemic time that they're willing to look at, and I think it's thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. And so we were thirteen minutes, um, but so it's very comparable to to what the you know a lot of the transplant surgeons are looking at in the DCD space for for livers for for transplant. I'm a family advocate, so I approach for donation. Oh, great. So I'm wondering, too, what y'all have done on the front end there. Yeah, so it, it's about, first of all, it's about honoring the decision to donate. And so we've been we've been working uh, diligently to, to make sure that we're navigating that in the, in the right context and making sure that our, our staff are, are trained appropriately to be able to feel like they're, they're comfortable and confident in having that conversation with the family. Uh, we're hearing more and more that we've had families that unfortunately have said, you know, when they when they've made the decision to withdraw, they they're they're ready to withdraw now, and so they're telling us, "I wish I would have known yesterday, or two days ago. I would have loved to have donated, and I would love to have honored my my loved one's decision to donate if I if I would have known." But at this point, you know, we're we're just ready for it to all be over. So we're we're really our family services team and our hospital and team and others are really trying to to navigate that particular aspect. Yeah, timing too, how yeah. How can we get, yeah, timing, and how can we continue to get better at what we're doing and make sure that um, we're able to provide this opportunity to these families. Right, wow. Yeah. That's what it's all about, working together to make life happen. We talk about this on the podcast all the time, so we appreciate you joining us to share the story. If folks want more, they want to learn more, they want to follow you guys, see what's next, um, where do we send them? You can send them to our website at lifelineofohio.org. There's plenty of information about about our organization there, and we're happy to uh, to answer any questions that anyone may have. 
whether you know they're they're in the OPO world or just someone wants to know more information about this, we're happy to answer any questions uh, as we as we move forward. So thank you all for the opportunity, and I also want to say a huge kudos and thanks to uh, to your program, the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, for all that you guys do uh, in the field of donation and transplantation. We've learned so much from you. And we're very appreciative for, for all that you guys are currently doing and have done. We've, we've learned a lot and continue to learn from you. So thank you. Wow. Well, Andrew, we will be here for your next landmark and donation. Mm-hmm. So please stay in touch with the Gift of Life podcast. And thanks for sharing today. Thank you all. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. In the podcast, we take a moment for mental health. That is now. That is now. And somehow Sarah's going to convince me <laughs> okay. or try to convince me that conflict actually benefits relationships. What You're you on. Got? That's right, guys. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. Okay. So first of all, yes, we're going to talk about how conflict definitely benefits relationships. But the first piece of the puzzle is we're going to have to redefine conflict because right now conflict, you hear fight, right? Mm-hmm. So oh, we have that's to, how she got you. Yeah, <laughs> I tricked you, Joey. <laughs> so really, I want us to think about conflict as not fighting, but as healthy conflict. So what is healthy conflict? It's being able to communicate with your partner about something that you disagree on. And it's not just romantic partners either. This could be friendships, family, just any relationship. So conflict is just discussing things that we disagree upon or things that make us uncomfortable, upset, anything like that. So... It's good, though, because we need to keep open communication with those in our lives so that we can get through things. Correct. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I know you said it's not about like it doesn't have to be romantic partners, but I'm thinking, okay, like takes the blankets. Where are we going to go to dinner? Like those. Yes. (laughs) So how do we fix that? How do I fix him is what I'm asking. Oh, you'll need to seek a mental health professional. No. <laughs> um, so I just want everybody to be less afraid of conflict, too, because it really just gets you going and it gets you to a place where you both can agree or you can compromise, which is really healthy. So first of all, you just have to make sure that when you're going into conflict with a person in your life, um, you make sure your energy is correct. So you're coming at it very open and very non-blaming, non-defensive you're ready to have a conversation that a little bit could affect you negatively as well. Yeah. And, and I can tell you that is a challenge. It's different. Mm-hmm. So from I have so many conflicts at work and mm-hmm. even with and not not in a bad way, just differences of opinions and, and decisions that have to be made. And it's so much easier to match my energy to where I need it to be mm-hmm. in my work relationships than it is in my personal relationships, if that makes any sense. That's when you Be- relax, like, oh, because God, you, right. So work, I'm, I'm always in tune to those things. I try mm-hmm. to make sure I'm projecting, and I'm, I'm, I don't. It, it, it's not an emotional thing to me. It's, it's a lot more cut and dry. Some of the decision mm-hmm. makings and differences in opinions, whereas when you bring it into the personal realm mm-hmm. you see a lot more emotions being involved in it, and then, then right. of course, when emotions are thrown at you, it's harder to. You know, like you mm-hmm. said, keep your energy and emotions and everything in check to, right. to be where it should be. So just know, too, that you can always take a pause if you if it does feel like it's rising in emotion and it's getting more negative and angry and defensive. 
it's okay to take a pause and to let that person know we need to take a pause and come back to this when we're both ready and have the right we're in the right headspace for this. When you mm-hmm. check your tood and use your words. It's true. <laughs> it's true, though, but it's hard. You know, these aren't easy things. Oh, I'm not saying it's easier <laughs> that I can do it. <laughs> but that's exactly right. Check your attitude, take a Joey. deep breath, and come back to it. <laughs> um, another really good way to do this is to share about yourself, too. To share using I statements. So I feel this way. That's a really good way to start the conversation so that it's non-blaming as well. You don't want you to f- make who you're having this conversation with feel blamed or defensive. Yeah, I agree. And then, you know, own your own contribution to the problem. Okay, Mm -hmm. now this is getting crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You're never wrong, Lori, huh? No, no. (laughs) But um, as they say, there's two people in everything. So if you lead with, I was wrong when I did this, instead of you did this, you did this, when you start with I did this or I might have contributed in this way, it opens the door and it creates a more trusting conversation so that they don't feel so blamed and it isn't as emotional. Sorry is hard to say sometimes. It is. It is. (laughs) (laughs) But I hear you. That's good. That's good. Yeah. And then just follow it up with, you know, what can we do differently in the future? So what are some actual actions and behaviors that Mm -hmm. we can change so that this conflict doesn't keep happening? So you and I need to talk then. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Those are good. All right. Anything else, Miss Sarah? No. Just know that conflict isn't bad. It's okay to have differences of opinions. It's okay if you hurt someone and they hurt you as long as you are on the same page with making it better. It can really open up the door to a more meaningful relationship. You done taking notes, Joe? <laughs> nope, still? I've, I've okay. always known conflict is not bad to me. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Challenge. <laughs> All right. Uh, we like that. Um, maybe you have a, a question you'd like Sarah to tackle. You can email us here at info at thegiftedlife.org. Earlier in the podcast, we spoke with Lifeline of Ohio about the first DCD heart donor in the United States. As you know, in every episode, we honor a hero. Today's hero is that very amazing donor, Justice Yoder. Here's more about Justice. During his lifetime, Justice cared for developmentally disabled individuals. Through his death and decision to be a registered organ donor, he saved the lives of recipients ranging in age from mid-20s to mid-60s. This young man was the shining light and beacon of hope for his family and friends, said the donor's family. He supported, loved, and lived fiercely. Even though we will miss him, we know a part of him lives on. This truly provides us comfort. He was an extraordinary young man. And now we pause and say thank you to Justice for the gift of life. question and answer segment today. What is a living will? What is DNR? Are they the same thing? Joe, can you jump in here? Yes. So uh, we had spoken this in a prior podcast a little bit about living wills and living wills are kind of usually the the term living wills used interchangeably with advanced directive or advanced medical directive. Mm -hmm. It's a legal document from a decision that that, uh, a person makes for the time that they become ill, too ill to make the decision for themselves or incapacitated. So it encompasses uh, all areas of healthcare, everything that you would need in, in those situations. A DNR 
it can be part of a, a living will. Uh, DNR is do not resuscitate, and that's just basically says that when uh, when your body's failing and you, and your heart is shutting down, that the the healthcare team doesn't do CPR and advanced cardiac life support. So it can be part of the living will, and they uh, you know, but they certainly aren't interchangeable like living will and advanced directives. If you want to learn more about end-of-life decision-making, you can listen to our episode 99 with Paul Rabelais. And if you have a question that you want us to answer on the podcast, go ahead and email us at info at thegiftedlife.org. And you can also call us at 504-648-3477. Episode 128 of The Gifted Life in the Books. Yeah, thanks to Andrew and his team there at Lifeline of Ohio for pushing the envelope and allowing the rest of us to follow and and hopefully see a lot more heart donations through that. Incredible story. And you, you right there, you listening, thank you so much. And hopefully you are inspired to register as an organ, tissue, and eye donor. You can do that anytime, registerme.org. And remember, you can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. You can listen there or on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and give us a five-star rating and subscribe so that more people can find us. Or if you're on social media, like our page on Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast, and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. And we do hope that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. We do appreciate you listening and hope that you share the Gifted Life podcast in this new year. Have a great day. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.